In this episode, Anurag Basnet speaks about his experience as an editor, his love for translations and his much lauded work Fruits of the Barren Tree, which is translated from the award-winning Nepali novel Fulange, written by author Lekhnath Chetri. Fruits of the Barren Tree depicts the plight of an ordinary man caught in the Gorkhaland movement of the late 1980s. which focused on creating a separate state out of the Darjeeling region in West Bengal India it is a story of a failed campaign and a cautionary tale of how easily the contagion of violence can infect a community anurag basnet is an editor and translator based in noida delhi he has been associated with the publishing industry for over 17 years with stints at penguin random house india Rupa Publications and Speaking Tiger His published works include translations of travelog by Anil Yadav titled as Is that even a country sir and a book of essays by Ravish Kumar The Free Voice on Democracy Culture and the Nation The book Fruits of the Barren Tree can be purchased using the link given in the show notes Welcome to our podcast Harshniya Monarak Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You have been in the publishing industry for a very long time. What made you take up a career in publishing? Well, um from the beginning I've been interested in reading and, and it was it seemed like a natural progression from uh, from what I was uh, studying in college which was English literature to a career in books. Uh, also it suits my temperament which uh, which tends towards i would say slightly solitary professions because to an extent uh, books editorial uh, or the editorial function is is a solitary exercise uh, when you're working on a book it is just you of course it also entails liaising with different people different teams but primarily the job is is focused you do it almost entirely on your own um, so that so that drew me to it to it and it's just a it's it's uh, when your passion becomes your job kind of thing can you tell us a bit about uh, your experience in book publishing uh, i joined publishing in 2006 i joined penguin books india at that time it was penguin books india i joined as what is called an editorial assistant editorial assistant is uh, more or less an intern i would say the first thing that we were taught uh, was deal with text essentially to deal with text deal with masses of text because books are different from uh, let's say the copy desk in a newspaper because uh, in a you know when you're looking at a newspaper article it's around 1500 words lesser sometimes um, but not much more than 2000 words i would say uh, whereas even a novella is around 20 25000 words so what we were taught primarily was to was to maintain focus over this long period of time also and uh, and to look at text at different levels so structurally uh, from the point of view of uh, the wider the wide angle focus i would say uh, structurally do do things make sense uh, if it's fiction uh is there consistency um is there consistency in characters is there consistency in what's happening is there missing is there something missing in the plot 
Uh, is something extraneous to the plot? Can something be removed? Uh, and one of the things that I think we were taught quite uh, well, I think, and, and, and with a great deal of uh, insistence, is that less is more, especially when telling stories. Less is more. I mean, try and pare it down as much as you can. Um, the second focus was, of course, looking at uh, uh, then at grammar, paragraphs, and then finally at the level of the sentence. So I, so we were trained uh, uh, from structure to proofing to uh, how to, you know, how to come up with uh, book covers, for instance, right? Uh, from the beginning, that was one of the things that we taught that. Um, how do you how do you package something just right for the market? How do you give suitable uh, suitable instructions or suitable guidelines to a cover designer in terms of in terms of your book? So that kind of thing. And as as one grew senior in the role, uh, we were taught, or I, I I started learning to look at the market itself, trends, what works, what doesn't, that kind of thing. So it has been a very fulfilling experience across all uh, across all um, roles in publishing, uh, except for the sales function. I think I've looked at kind of everything. Um, that is one, uh, and one of the things I think that is intensely, you know, that never grows old, so to speak, is you know when you when you come when you come across this fantastic book, which you think is fantastic. It comes to you uh, or you come across an idea which you think is, you know, this is just perfect for for the times. And, uh, you know, the, the, editor, the editorial rule is just that it is to be excited about something and then to convey that excitement first internally to the team and then externally to the market. So the whole process of marketing and packaging and editing, working closely with the with the author or editor, and then uh, shaping the book, and you know, and when that book goes out into the market, if it sells well, if it does well, if it reaches a, a number of people, number of people like it, you know, it's a very fulfilling experience. It, it, it makes you feel really good. If something does well and commercially, that's excellent. If something does well critically, that's also brilliant. You know, um, somebody comes comes back to you and says, you know, I really like that book. I thought, I thought it was wonderfully written, or it, that book spoke to me. So, so that is one of the and you know, one of the things that I I still, after many years, I'm still thrilled when that happened. Please tell us uh, about the non-fiction books uh, that you have translated. From editing into translation was. At first, I didn't know I could I could translate. I wasn't, you know. So, so one, so when one is working, you tend to focus on your core areas uh, in the thing that you are trained for, and you do that. But uh, I started translating with this traveler called uh, "Is That Even a Country," which is a which is a English translation of traveler called "Obi Koi Desh Maharaj" by Anil Yadav. The first thing that the first thing that draws you to a translation is, you know, unless you're being paid millions of rupees, uh, you know, is that is, to, is is that you have to like the book. Something something in a book appeals to you, clicks. Uh, I personally think that 
translation is the ultimate book recommendation. It's like somebody saying that, you know, I like this enough uh, for me to actually bring it to you in, in a language that I understand and you understand. Let's just share it and make it more kind of uh, widely known. And that was what Gobi uh, Desi Maharaj was doing. So the premise is is uh, is very unique. It's a very unique proposition. So um, I think this was happening during the late 2000s, or no, early 2000s or so, when there was a lot of violence in the Northeast and uh, and people were being uh, persecuted and you know uh, in, sent sent away essentially. So especially people from the from uh, from the mainland from, were being sent away and there was a lot of uh, anger and violence because of various reasons. So while this is happening, uh, a, a newspaper reporter who's living in Delhi decides that I should go there and see what's happening. Uh, what's interesting is that this is this is the kind of journalism that uh, that is appealing in that sense, right? It's not helicopter journalism where somebody flies in and speaks to maybe three or four or five key people or non-key people or whatever, draws some conclusions, draws some uh, draws some conclusions and makes makes extrapolations. And comes back and writes about it. So, so this reporter who goes there, Anil Yadav, is uh, has no money, has no connections, um, and he's going there almost like a blank slate. Let me see what's happening, and I'll write about it. And uh, and his experiences on the ground are as interesting and as uh, insightful as. The political conclusions he draws from what's he, what's happening, and uh, in many senses, it's this kind of uh, uh, where somebody is not magisterially explaining what's happening in the northeast. You know, this, so, so so we get a lot of that uh, kind of writing also. Where here, come, let me explain what's happening. Uh, so. So the author essentially is saying that, you know, let me try and figure out what's going on. And if I can figure it out, let, you know, uh, uh, I'll try and explain it to you as well. And if you don't figure it out, then uh, then we don't. So that attitude, you know, um, and there's very real danger because uh, he, the interesting thing is he's in a minority there, you know, so, so, so that made for that made for a lot of tension. That made for very good reading, uh, and it was quite well received also in Hindi as well, and I think in English also. Uh, quite a few people read it and liked that kind of you know almost like this Gonzo uh, uh, kind of approach to 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 journalism. So that so that worked nicely. So that was the first book basically I I translated, and uh, since then I've translated. After that, I translated Ravish Kumar's essays uh, from Hindi into English. Uh, that, that of course, was uh, was a project had to be done. You know, who, uh, his <laughs> his uh, his ideas and and the things he says about contemporary India and contemporary society are just too powerful to ignore. And uh, especially what he says about media, what he says about culture, what he says about what's happening on a daily basis is too compelling to ignore and 
and more than that, passion in that in that sense that he brings to this subject, the the, the kind of almost personal anguish that he brings to these uh, topics makes a very compelling reading. And uh, the idea was that if uh, more people read it, then then it perhaps it's better for us, that kind of a thing. I stopped translating from Hindi after that, uh, 2018. Yeah, nine, 19, 19 was when that book came out. 18 was, yeah, 18 was when it came out, Ravish Kumar's. Then I moved to Gangtok. And there, again, I found that, you know, a lot of compelling writing is happening in contemporary Nepali literature. So that's uh, so that's where the focus has been. How do you think your experience as an editor helped you in your translation work? Being an editor makes uh, life a little difficult also, uh, if you are a translator. But uh, I think... These two roles meld into each other, at least in my case it does, because uh, when I translate, so the first thing the, the first thing I do is, is read through the book and then and then I lay down the first draft. And mostly the, the first draft is pretty crappy, I would say. Uh, when you go back and read it again, it's pretty much raw. Uh, once that first draft is done, then my translator's cap, in that sense, is off. Then I have to put on my editorial hat and editor's hat and start working on the text. One of the things that uh, that is true of translations is that the book in English has to work in English. It has to stand up as, it has to stand as an independent uh, work all its own. It has to have its own internal logic. Uh, it has to have uh, you know, the dialogues, for instance, have to have to ring true. Um, if there are contextual references that are not understood, to uh, or that are, you know that that uh, let's say a Nepali reader understands, uh, perhaps the English reader may not understand. So all of those factors, all of those things, have to be fixed as an editor, not as a translator. Uh, so. So being an editor really, really is sometimes key to getting the text to a uh, slightly more mature level than it started out. Right? Um, and that helps because it shortens the process, I think. Uh, so if I, so, so if I just submitted something which has not been edited or has not been worked on, uh, then somebody else will have to work on it, obviously. And there, and there is a problem there because you know I'm translating from Nepali, for instance. Uh, most publishing houses, uh, or would not have that expertise. To you know, I would prefer that the editor also knew Nepali uh, if they were editing them. Uh, so without you know, so 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 it helps uh, if I work on it because at least I'm sure that. I won't say that you know 100% of everything has been sorted because it's not possible. I'm too close to the text, but I'm reasonably sure about 95 to 96% of everything that has to be fixed has been fixed. So being an editor and a translator, you know, really meld into each other. Um, I think all translators in that sense are also editors. If you've had training, even better.
you have done a translation of both non fiction and now fiction with fruits of the barren tree how different is uh, the translating uh, the non fiction from fiction the first draft is not different at all the laying down of the first draft is not different the process is absolutely the same for fiction and non fiction you're just sitting there and getting uh, getting text on text on paper or on screen as is once that is done and when you start reviewing the work that's where the differences start coming in fiction especially novels also short stories or also novellas uh, they are a uni- fiction is a universe of its own the author is trying to create a universe which is entirely self contained and it has its own internal logic it has its own internal pace it has its own internal movement and it moves in a certain way which is inexorable you can't uh, you can't fiddle with it in that sense you can't you can't change it you can't uh, change the course of it it's done uh, as a translator you try what you're trying to do is to get that universe in its entirety and trying to transplant it to a different language another language messy process and but the problem that i i find is that fiction tends to be a little less malleable than non fiction it's not as easily you know reshaped i'll give you examples uh, so this book that i'm translating right now or i just actually i just submitted it to uh, to my editor at pen uh, so just before coming here for this the book is called house of modern bone uh, in english in nepali it's called Mat- matakukhar which means uh, house of mud so the author sanjay bishta has written it with no sense of uh, with no sense that it's going to be translated or it has to be translated he's written it entirely as per his own lights and he's written it for a very specific nepali audience he understands his reader understands it's between him and them it's it's between him and me also as a reader i understand the specific cultural contexts i understand the uh, the asides i understand the things that are not said because in a novel it's fiction is as much about what is said as what is unsaid and i think our pleasure in reading fiction also comes from filling in those gaps right whether it is whether it is politics or culture or emotion or relationships the the beauty of reading fiction sometimes or the joy of reading fiction also you know comes from the fact that we uh, tend to complete the author's sentences as a translator it puts me in a spot because i can't uh, some of it is just unexplainable and building context and uh, that which is that which is unsaid uh, so so i had to kind of strike a very fine balance between explicating what is leaving unsaid to make a judgment on you know what can i leave behind which is unsaid will the reader in english understand and uh, one can explain certain things via footnotes but fiction mostly uh, doesn't work with footnotes it's just too much of an intervention uh, whereas in non fiction it life is much easier because 
because I can explicate things. I can intervene to a, to a certain extent. I can even use footnotes as a strategy to, uh, to provide a whole layer of meaning, a new layer of meaning. Right? So, so that way they're, they're very different uh, in terms of translation. Uh, mainly because one has to, you know, one has to judge what to explain, what not to explain. Both give tremendous joy, <laughs> but the process of working the text becomes or is very different for fiction than non-fiction, at least for me. Can you talk about uh, the contemporary fiction in uh, Nepali language? Writing in Nepali is divided geographically into two parts, or at least, you know, so, so geographically into two parts. There is writing in Nepali, in Nepal, centered on the realities of Nepal, the political realities, the economic realities of Nepal. And one of the things about, one of the things I really, really uh, uh, admire about Nepal is this uh, robust connection with books. They there is a very strong, dedicated reading culture. Uh, there is this hunger, I think, there is this hunger also, uh, at least from the last, uh, at least since the Civil War, I think. There is this sense of a country trying to understand itself. There is, amongst the young people, amongst the older generation, there is this hunger to narrativize and to understand and to see where they're going, see what has happened, see where they're going. Historically, there's been a very robust tradition of writing, uh, fiction, fiction also non-fiction, poetry, drama, uh, poetry especially. Uh, there have been some great, great poetry, uh, great poets uh, in, in Nepal, short stories. But I think at least in the contemporary scene, uh, post, I would say post the uh, post the transition to from monarchy into the republic, which was a very messy period, that's thrown up some of the best writing uh, from 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 Nepal. I would say uh, authors like Manjushri Thapa and writing in English, Samrat Upadhyay, Prashant Cha, uh, political commentators. Uh, and this, this, so these are people writing in English and in Nepali, there is, you know, there is this whole, uh, there are a bunch of writers writing in Nepali also. So there is a robust reading culture, as I said, and there is a robust uh, reviewing culture. For instance, there is this, there is an author called Buddhisagar, okay, who's uh, by far, by far a bestseller in, in Nepal. So that's happening there across the border, at least in 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 Kathmandu. Uh, on this side of the border, in India, we also have a tradition of writing uh, in Nepali. However, that writing is, you know, all about here. It's not about Nepal. Or it's not. It doesn't look there for. It doesn't look across the border for inspiration. So we have our own. Uh, we have our own issues. We have our own. Uh, we have the things that we have to write about. The Nepali-speaking population in India is uh, is actually scattered. It's informed by migration. So we've had we've had migration from Nepal into India uh, since the late late 1800s or so. 
and successive waves of migration have uh, resulted in people coming in and settling in various parts of india right so there is a, there is a there is a nepali population in darjeeling kalimpong that area so that population lives uh, as agriculturalists in uh, you know as agriculturalists some of uh, some people work on tea estates so that's one population another population of uh, nepalis are live in the northeast so assam nagaland manipur so there's a strong population of nepalis there and there is a population of nepalis in dehradun so, so these are three of the key areas i think where nepalis live and of course you know there is a nepali floating nepali population nepali speaking population all over india um migrants from darjeeling and 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 by by nepali speaking i mean nepali speaking indian citizens writing has come from all three areas so darjeeling has a robust writing culture from the from the beginning in assam we have had we have uh, we have writers in dehradun but uh the issues or the topics the themes that they write on are local for them okay so for instance i'll give you the instance i'll, I'll give you the example of a writer called lil bahadur chetri so lil bahadur chetri is uh, is uh, is one of our most kind of prominent writers he lives in assam in guwahati um his concerns or his themes are essentially of nepalese writing or living in assam uh, whereas somebody like uh, a nepali writer like chudan kabimo who lives in kalimpong uh, his book patsung which was translated as song of the soil by ajit baral was shortlisted for the jcb last year uh, and he 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 talks about the andolan which is very specific to him so that way contemporary nepali writing is in a sense fragmented geographically especially uh, in terms of you know in terms of what people write about so uh, some of the contemporary writers in in kalimpong or in darjeeling are chudan kabimo and lekha chetri sanjay bishta babita madan all of these people who are writing about contemporary issues for darjeeling which is gorkha land and uh, violence and identity to an extent uh, whereas somebody like lil bahadur chetri writing from from assam is his is one of his most famous books is called uh, brahmaputra bachelsa so it's about life near the brahmaputra so it's fragmented the contemporary writing scene uh, at least in nepal in india is is fragmented uh, people are writing about various things and and it i think it makes for very interesting literature it makes for very interesting reading because it's not monolithic it's not you know it's not right people writing about the same issues or the same topics that lots of things to focus on uh, backdrop uh, for this novel fruits of the barren tree is uh, gorkha land moment uh, for a separate state please give us some historical and uh, political context uh, about the moment and also tell us uh, why did you choose to translate this particular book so the so it starts it starts actually with the story of porous borders 
So the borders between Nepal and India have uh, have always been porous, right? Uh, and especially after the late, after the mid 1800s, uh, when the Treaty of uh, Sugauli was signed, a lot of things happened around that time. Uh, one was the decision on the part of the British Empire to make or to build Darjeeling as a sanatorium for their people. So Darjeeling was part of the Sikkim, Sikkim Kingdom and then it went over to the British uh, and they decided, okay, this is a suitable place for us to build, uh, for us to build a sanatorium for our soldiers, some, some, some place where they can recover. And also their discovery that the slopes of uh, Darjeeling Darjeeling specifically and Kershaw, not Kalampur, all are suitable to grow tea. So actually the story, that's where the story begins, to be honest. Uh, now, when you're setting up a town, when you're setting up a, a city, in a sense, on top of a hill. So when you go to Darjeeling, you will see, or you will realize one thing, which is that it's a very labor-intensive town. Everything that has been built there has been built by dint of a lot of sheer hard labor. You know, uh, and it's quite, it's quite obvious even now. The, the train, for instance, the train, the Darjeeling, the famous Darjeeling toy train. Uh, everyone, everyone, you know, we talk about it as a marvel of engineering. We talk about it as a marvel. It is a marvel of engineering. Yes, it is a marvel of engineering. And civil engineering and uh, and ingenuity. But it's also a marvel of labor. Laying tracks on that incline uh, with no modern machinery, with, uh, there are these old photographs of women, you know, women actually pulling kind of makeshift bulldozers to, you know, to just, and if you look at the terrain and, you know, destroying thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of forest to build uh, or to plant tea required labor. So that's where the story begins, right? So where so where do you get labor from? Because people from the plains are not suited to uh, to go to the hills and work there. So they couldn't so they couldn't easily transport labor from the plains to uh, to work there. So uh, the British encouraged migration into Darjeeling. And surrounding areas. So the pay was better than Nepal, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, you, you could come and go as you please. So while Darjeeling was part of the British Empire, uh, things were fine. Right? But after independence, what happened was Darjeeling, uh, Darjeeling the, the, that entire area uh, was or became part of West Bengal. Right? So it wasn't. It, in, from the beginning, it was it was a district in West Bengal. It is a topographically distinct region, uh, as far as West Bengal is concerned. Uh, it is a linguistically distinct region. Uh, it is a culturally distinct region. Uh, and from the beginning, uh, there was a fear, 
as a minority living in a large state, perhaps the benefits of being, uh, perhaps the benefits would not reach reach us. I think that was I think that was a consistent fear, and also the natural fear of being uh, a minority was quite palpable from the beginning. So, so if you look at the history of the Gorkha land, uh, this kind of struggle for identity from the beginning, right from the time of, uh, right from the time of independence, various uh, letters, various uh, applications, various appeals had been made uh, for the, you know, for the formation of a separate state, which would safeguard the rights of the Nepali-speaking Indian citizens, right? Uh, of course, there was a degree of confusion on what that what that union might be, what that state might be. Who would it uh, Who would it be for? Even today, there is a good. Even today, there is a confusion. I mean, I I, I can I can see this quite freely that. Uh, if you're talking about a separate state of Gurkha land for Nepali-speaking people of India, would that include Nepali-speaking people in Assam, for instance? Would that include Nepali-speaking people in Dehradun or in Delhi or in uh, you know, Nepali-speaking Indian? So, so there is a degree of confusion. From the beginning, there was the sense that we need a space that is our own. We need a space that is uh, that uh, is away from the influence or away from the uh, administrative influence of West Bengal. This was a simmering issue, you know, along with other issues, as is quite natural of states in India, other issues of development, other issues of infrastructure. This was also a simmering issue. But things came to a head in the 1980s when uh, uh, this person, when this leader called Subhash Kissing came to power in, uh, in Darjeeling. And he set up uh, an outfit called the GNLF, Gorkha National Liberation Front. And he emerged as the single voice for the demand of a separate state. Okay. Uh, so as soon as GNLF was formed, uh, uh, an outfit, an allied outfit called the Gorkha Volunteers and GVC was also formed. And uh, in 1986, this became this movement became violent, right? So, so imagine this. Like, uh, so, so GNLF is a is a new party uh, in Darjeeling. Uh, the administrators or the people in power, the party in power, is the uh, CPIM, the Communist Party of India, Marxist. And obviously, they came into conflict immediately. Uh, so it began with it began with that. So once unrest started happening, then the state had to intervene. So, so when the state intervened, then it became a three-way fight almost. So internally, so internally, the internally the you know the new party and the CPM are already at, in conflict, and then the party in power comes, uh, or the state government has to intervene. So this continued for about two years, uh, 1986 to 1988. We had two years of violence in which uh, official records say 1,200 people died. Many more people died. Many more, many more people disappeared. Then, in two thousand and seven, the a separate an, another party came up, which said that no, the demand was always for Gorkhaland, 
we we should not be satisfied with this uh, kind of stopgap arrangement. Uh, a new revolution, a new andolan started. So this happened under the leadership of uh, a person called Bimal Guru, and the party was called GGM, Gorkha Janmukti Mocha. This movement started uh, in 2007, ended in 2017. The same problem that had happened earlier happened now, which was a single party system. Single party uh, dominated politics, dominated the discourse. One of the things that happens when discourse is dominated by a very powerful group of individuals is that writing suffers. 2017, finally, uh, the party kind of was dismantled. A kind of a multi-party system almost came into came into power, and that changed a lot of things. That changed a lot of things, um, in the sense that suddenly there was this atmosphere when where one could write and speak about these things. The parties that went before the GNLF and the GGMs, they must have had their own reasons for not allowing people to speak or people to write. But the side effect of that ban was that we had no chance to process the violence that happened. We had no chance to process the trauma, the fear, all of that. We had no chance to record our stories, and there were many stories, individual stories, collective stories, uh, to the to the extent that we had no chance to even document the andolan itself in in the form of fiction or nonfiction. So now we were in two thousand and seventeen. You know, we were at this stage where any researcher wanting to find out more about what happened in '88 and you know, has no access to material. There is no documentation, right? 2019 uh, was the first was the first time a novel was published, uh, which was Fatsum. I got a hold of that novel and I read it, and I was like, you know, wow, this is this is finally happening. This is finally happening. Like somebody, we are, we are finally writing about these things. After 30, 35 years, finally we're writing about these things. So so then I started looking around, where, who else is writing? What other books are being written? So at which point I found, uh, I, I was also told or directed towards Pulangeki. This book has also been written. Please read it. And as soon as I did, the first thing I knew was that it has to be translated. Obviously, why? Because... This is a story that has not been written about for such a long time, one, but it's also such a wonderfully written story. It's got force, it's got a lot of power, uh, a lot of raw anger also. The first thing that struck me was, you know, more people should read it, why not? So that's where it started. It's a long, long-winded <laughs> answer to a short question. No, 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 that, that's, that's fine, that's fine. When we actually get into the novel, the protagonist uh, Basnet uh, and his family and even the villagers, most of the villagers, they don't seem to be having uh, any idea about uh, what the moment is all about, uh, why they are fighting. That is true for most uh, that is true for most movements, I think, everywhere, uh, large or small. That is true for politics in general. To be honest. Uh, decisions are taken elsewhere mostly uh, and those decisions affect uh, those decisions are made to uh, made with whatever considerations there are 
the, the real politic considerations at that or that particular moment. Um, but those decisions affect individual lives, and I think that's what this novel is all about. The the idea that you know a gale, a storm, can blow elsewhere. But once she, once she kind of breeze coming from that can throw everything in turmoil or can throw everything in uproar in another place. So in in this particular case, I you know if you look at it topographically, Bizenbari uh, is so so imagine a hill, right, and on the horizon from that hill. So imagine a hill, on top of that is Darjeeling. You can stand here and look across the valley to the hill on the horizon and that's Vision Valley. Actually, in, 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 in reality. As the crow flies, it will hardly be, I would say, around 25-30 kilometers. Right? But uh, it could it is another world it could be another world and we're talking about 1980s right? 1980s when uh, forget mobile phones and the internet we didn't have television television was a very late addition to our lives in in the hills uh, and even when we did have television finally in the early 90s i think uh, you know uh, um, we didn't have a broadcasting station nearby. So the nearest broadcasting station was actually in Bangladesh. We could actually, we could actually, uh, we actually spent a year in the 90s when the television first came into the area watching programs from Bangladesh instead of India. The point is that decisions that are being taken place with real politic implications uh, in Darjeeling will reach Bijanbari magnified. The reasons why some decisions are being taken uh, and also local local politics will interpret orders and decisions in its own way as it suits their convenience. Right? So, so, so at the end of the day what happened was that uh, large political movement which is ha- which is happening elsewhere affected village politics in a very real sense because then it gave people excuses to carry out their personal vendettas as is there in the book you know it gave them pe- it gave people an excuse to uh, you know act on their personal prejudices right um, and so so that's where you know that's why I think the, that's why in the book you get the sense that Things happening elsewhere affect people individually here, but they really not—they really don't know because because there is no one to explain. There is no one to explain why something is happening or what is the larger context of why something is happening. They're just told that you know this is a flag you have to wave it, and they'll wave it because if you don't wave it, uh, something bad will happen to you. So, so that's I think that's that's the that's the idea of why Lichna chose to write it the way he did. Yeah. 
can you tell us uh, the meaning of uh, fulange uh, the nepali title of uh, fruits of the barren tree so fulange is a rustic nepali term which uh, used which is used in an agrarian context uh, so certain seeds which you plant become trees they bear flowers which don't convert into fruit so uh, like for instance uh, mangoes don't grow in the hills but if you but if you plant a mango sapling it will grow up and become a tree it will have it will bear flowers but it won't bear fruit the word phulange stands as a metaphor for everything uh, it is a metaphor for the idea of darjeeling itself uh, which is that the idea took root very strongly uh there was a lot of political uh, there was a lot of popular support for the idea it took robust shape it became a tree but nothing came of it so just as the principal character is uh, you know has potential uh could have become something but didn't so the same i think so i so the same fate has befallen successive successively over two now over two andolans uh, that's the same kulange fate has befallen us so it stands as a metaphor looking back at the the gorkhaland moment and the fallout what are your reflections as a student of uh, literature so the history of the gorkhaland movement for me is a history of violence uh, uh, it has reached very close or it has reached people's lives very closely it has affected people's lives very closely um i lost an uncle uh, in the in the andolan where uh, he was an elderly gentleman uh, 50s in his 50s he was blind uh, or technically technically i would say he was he had glaucoma so he couldn't see at all almost and uh, there was a there was a time when he was uh, when we were having or when we were experiencing these successive raids in the village so where the paramilitary forces would come and you know there'd be a shakedown and uh, interrogation and all of that and my uncle he was actually a government employee and uh, one day he one day he panicked and he ran uh, a raid was a raid was happening and he ran and uh, he he hid uh, in his fields and uh, patrolling a, a, a party of uh, of paramilitary forces which was patrolling uh, encountered him and shot him dead so so it's a history of violence um, and and this is not one single story this is not just my story this is a story almost everyone will tell you you go and ask anyone they will have a story of this kind if it's not this uh, outright murder it'll be of uh, of people coming and just you know uh, interrogating people uh, terrorizing people so the fallout the biggest fallout or the biggest uh, thing that we can learn from uh, from from these past 30 35 years i think is that the most important act is to document violence 
And that's what we did not do. The most important act is to document violence because when you document violence, when you document state violence, when you document uh, interpersonal violence, when you document all of this, uh, violence against women, right? Uh, if you if you don't document it as it is happening, or at least as soon as it has happened, um, then it becomes very easy to deny this violence. It's almost it's almost as if it never happened. So people from today's generation, if we talk about these things, for them this is for them a lot of a lot you know a lot of young people that I speak to um, say that you know this sounds like stories, this sounds like legends. So uh, so that is the one thing that we that that uh, that I think uh, we can learn from these last thirty five years is at least now let's start collecting these stories. At least now let's start talking about these things. Uh, let's start talking about these things. Let's start talking about what happened. Let's start talking about, you know, in non-fiction, uh, what happened. Let's start, start, let's start, if it's too difficult to document these things, let's start talking uh, in our stories, you know, let's, let's make fiction out of it. Uh, and this is one thing that I have been, you know, I, I, I keep mentioning in, uh, in the hope that somebody will take it up and we can all collectively take it take it up, uh, something that I think is very urgent uh, to do, which is to collect the oral histories of uh, people. Because oral histories are very important. You know, things that happened in 1986, people are going to forget. Those who lived through those times, uh, will there will come a time when they'll go away, they'll pass on. And then what do we do? You know? um, I'll tell you this very interesting thing that, that happened recently. So I was writing about my uncle, you know, for an article in, you know, in a paper, not in a paper, it was an online thing. And so I wrote it down as I remembered. Okay. Then I asked, no, uh, so, so it happened. So in my memory, it happened in a certain way. The read happened from a certain direction. Um, and uh, that was the sequence of events. Then I wa- then I went and asked his daughter, you know, uh, Didi, what happened? You know, can you tell me what happened that day? It was the complete opposite of what I had remembered. So I had remembered, or I I remembered that the raid came from downhill, up the hill. But what actually happened was that the raid came downhill from up the hill. And the most surprising thing was. And the most tragic thing of it was, I thought that it happened in 1986, right? That was what I that that was what my imagination was telling, or whatever fragments that I remember from that day, I had fixed it in 1986. But my sister told me that you know, you completely off the mark. It happened in 88. So memory plays tricks. You know, memory plays tricks. Where there are gaps, memory and imagination fill in those gaps. And we forget. We forget the specifics of that day. You know, was it June? Was it July? Was it monsoon? Was it summer? Um, Then the stories, you know, they just become vague and nebulous and uh, they keep becoming vague and vague and vague, more and more vague. And what, then what do you do? 
So that is, I think, the one big learning from uh, from this uh, is that you know we have to narrativize this. Uh, politicians will, of course, if you ask the same question to the to a politician, perhaps he will say or he or she will say something different. But uh, you know, if you ask a translator and a writer, I think that's the, that's what they'll say that. Let's start talking about these things because we don't. If we don't acknowledge uh, what has happened, then number one, we might repeat it. The same mistakes we might we might repeat those same mistakes. You know, it's very easy to say that we are a peace-loving people, and uh, you know, but it's difficult to confront our own past and see that yes, mistakes have been made, wrongs have been committed. Uh, killings and murders have taken place. Violence has happened, and perhaps if we understand that, then we probably will make the same mistakes again. But at least we know that somebody was there to bear witness. Thank you, thank you, Anurag, for this uh, wonderful conversation. And uh, I earnestly hope uh, that the book reaches uh, more readers through our podcast. Thank you so much. I'll just end with this. Darjeeling is a small corner of India. It's a way. It's difficult, you know, in a in a land in a country as big as India. It's difficult to get your stories heard. Uh, everyone has stories. Everyone has compelling stories. Everyone has valid stories, and we are all trying to get ourselves heard. Uh, and I'm very happy, and I'm very thankful to you uh, because. We need all the platforms we can find to tell our stories. So, I think this is a brilliant initiative, and I hope you don't uh, discontinue it at all, and you keep going. Thank you, thank you. That's so nice of you to say that. Thank you very much. <laughs>